Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Sea Gold by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 5, Was It Sabotage? To Rick's shocked mind, it seemed that broken bits of concrete rained around him for long minutes. Small pieces struck him, but fortunately no sizable chunks fell near. For a moment he lay still, then he got to his feet and was surprised that he still had the power of movement. A few yards away, Scotty was also getting to his feet, shaking his head dizzily. Doug Chambers put both hands on his chest and groaned. What happened? Tony yelled as he ran toward them. Rick didn't bother to answer. He called to Scotty. Are you hurt? I'm all right. Let's see how Doug is. The ex-Marine was already kneeling at Doug's side. Rick joined him, shaking his head to clear the cobwebs from it. As the two boys bent over him anxiously, the young engineer managed a tight grin. I'm okay. Just had the wind knocked out of me. You all right? They helped him to his feet, and he took a deep, shuddering breath, placing a hand on his chest again. Peace hit me, I think. Let's get to the hut, Rick said. You might have a broken rib. Who's bleeding? Tony asked suddenly, and then exclaimed, Brent, your sleeve's bloody. Rick looked at his arm. There was a tear in the shirt sleeve, and it was wet with blood. He wondered why he hadn't felt anything. Come on, Scotty said. He took Rick's good arm and led him toward the Quonset hut. Tony gave Doug Chambers a hand. A quick examination showed that the cut wasn't serious. Scotty cleaned and bandaged it expertly, using the first aid kit that the partners kept in the hut. Doug, meanwhile, shed his shirt, disclosing an area right over his breastbone where the skin was already turning purple. He pressed gingerly, his fingers probing for a possible fracture. Nothing serious, he announced. Just a bad bruise. You got off easy, Tony said. Easy is right, Doug's lips thinned. We might have been killed, all of us. Where were you, Tony? Down by the pump house. I was checking on the water flow. Then I heard the explosion and I ran. Rick tried to get up from the chair in which Scotty had seated him and found that his knees were shaky. He was sweating profusely. So were the others. Stay put, Scotty advised. You'll be all right in a minute. Tony, you're all right, Doug said. Go out, will you? Try to find out why the dome blew up. And bring a piece of that concrete in here. I just can't understand it. The engineer added slowly, I know I figured the stresses, right? I rechecked the specifications a dozen times. Those domes were designed to take up to 15 atmospheres. Rick started to comment, but the expression on Doug's face stopped him. It's been this way from the very beginning, Doug continued. We knew it was risky trying to get a plant like this going on a shoestring finance, but we were sure we could do it. We planned to start out on a small scale. We were going to put all the profits right back into expansion until we had something really big. But right from the very first, we've had bad luck. Rick saw an expression of sympathy forming on Scotty's lips and motioned him to be quiet. Doug felt like talking. He had to get this off his chest. First it was the property. A firm in New York claimed it belonged to an estate they handled. 
took a lot of money for lawyers' fees before we proved we had clear title to it. Then a cable broke while we were putting the sea inlet pipe sections together, and some of the sections dropped into the mud at the bottom. It took us a week to get them out, and then back together again. Then the sediment tanks arrived. They were in sheet sections, of course. I'd ordered them specially made with an electroplating of chrome alloy. Well, when they arrived, some of the chrome had been ground right off. The railroad compensated us for the expense of having them repaired, but we lost more time, and time means money. And about then, the Crayville people began quitting. We tried to reason with them, but they wouldn't listen. Tom even went to a few homes and tried to talk with them, but they weren't interested. A few said something about ruining the fishing, but we didn't take it too seriously. Until now. Tony came in holding a piece of concrete. And now this, Doug finished, cost us plenty to have those domes built. I can't understand it. Well, Tony, let's see that. He took a piece of the concrete and examined it. The boys went to his side and watched. The side blew out, Tony said. Doug crumpled a piece of the concrete and rolled it between his fingers. That's funny, he said as it crumpled. It shouldn't do that. He found a wrench and struck the concrete a sharp blow. It fell to pieces in his hand. Well, now we know, he said. He sounded very tired. This stuff isn't much stronger than so much sand. The plastic seal, I guess, held in the pressure until it finally gave. The concrete just wasn't strong enough. Somebody doped off, Scotty said. Yeah, so it would seem, Doug said grimly. He took the shattered concrete to the door and examined it in the bright sunlight. Then suddenly he held it close to his eyes and rubbed it with his fingers. That's strange, he mused. I wonder where this white powder came from. Rick looked over his shoulder and saw flecks of white mixed in with the gray. Maybe it's raw cement, he suggested. No, all the cement would have been combined into the mixture. This is something else. Doug dumped the stuff on the table and went to a cabinet and opened it and brought out a case from which he took a microscope. He explained as he plugged in the core that lit the bulb at the bottom of the microscope. I have this to use in examining the crystalline structure of the minerals we hope to get. He sprinkled a pinch of the concrete on the glass slide, inserted it and sat down, his eyes to the microscope. He turned the adjustment screws until he had the focus just right and then hunched over the eyepiece. Presently, Doug straightened up. I can't be sure but from the structure of the crystals, I'd say that white powder is gypsum. His dark eyes went from Rick to Tony to Scotty, and his voice got harsh. That means that the failure of the dome, the defective concrete, was the result of carelessness. Well, maybe whoever mixed the concrete was trying to make a bigger profit, Scotty suggested. Yeah, and there's another possibility, said Doug. Rick took a deep breath. Another possibility had occurred to him as well. There is a chance this was deliberate sabotage. Rick leaned forward anxiously. That was the thought that had crossed his mind. All those accidents Doug had mentioned. The telegram. Cooner Stoll's agitating among the fishermen. 
Why do you say that? Rick queried. I had some trouble with Jenkins, the contractor who built the domes. I found him trying to get into the process vault one day. I'm afraid I got rather upset. We had words. I'm sorry to say I took a swing at him. I apologized later, of course, but he didn't seem appeased. He probably would have quit, but Tom talked him out of it. The thought came to me just now. He deliberately adulterated the cement in order to get even with me. Who was this Jenkins? Rick asked. The name seemed familiar, but of course it was a very common one. Only where had he heard it recently? Small contractor from New Haven, Doug replied. He approached us and his price was so reasonable we hired him. Job wasn't complicated. Since I made the forms for the domes myself, or rather supervised the carpenters who did, all Jenkins had to do was mix the concrete and pour. He rose and started out the door. Rick and Scotty fell into step. Tony followed behind. The foreman hadn't said a word. Rick wondered if Tony just didn't care or whether he was simply a man of few words. Examination of the dome showed they had been very lucky, as Tony had said. The entire dome had not vanished, as Rick seemed to remember. There was only a hole, perhaps three feet square, where the concrete had blown away from the reinforcing steel mesh up near the curve at the top. It had seemed such a terrific explosion because they had happened to be directly in front of the weak spot that gave under the pressure. Water had poured from the hole. The initial spray had wet the boys thoroughly, but they had hardly noticed. Most of the concrete blown out had crumbled into small pieces. Only one or two sizable chunks had been blown far. One of them had struck Doug. Doug went to the second pressure dome and rubbed the surface. Rick only had to look at the engineer's face to know that it too had been sabotaged. Silently, Doug left them and walked down to the pier where the motorboat was tied. They saw him sit down and stare out at the sea. Tony departed in the direction of the pump house, and the boys were left alone. Well, we might as well go back to the hut and sit down, Rick said. Doug needs to be alone for a while, I guess. Scotty looked at Tony Larzo's retreating form. I don't think I could ever get real fond of Tony, he mused. Oh, that makes two of us, Rick agreed. We can form a club. Do you suppose the domes were really sabotaged? Beats me. Scotty shrugged. There's something going on here we can't figure out. Don't forget that telegram. Don't forget Cooner Stoles. They don't have to be connected, Rick pointed out as he stretched out on the bunk. But while you're remembering not to forget things, include Mr. Fred Lewis. He and Cooner will make a good team. Blubber puss and paper puss, Scotty grinned. Don't be disrespectful, Rick chided. Say... I wonder what Tom will think about this. A voice spoke up from the doorway. He'll probably philosophize about it. He's a great philosopher, Tom is. The boys turned and saw Tom grinning at them. Now that you know how I'll react, suppose you tell me what it is. Rick searched for a gentle way to break the news. We had a little trouble. We were testing one of the pressure domes, and it blew up. All the humor went out of Tom's pleasant face. He sat down heavily and stared at them. Let's have it. All of it, he said. Rick told him the story briefly, ending with Doug's discovery of an adulterant and the concrete. 
Tom was quiet for a long while and shook his head. Where's Doug? Sitting on the end of the pier. Did he try to get in touch with Jenkins? No. Tom went to the desk in the office part of the Quonset hut and searched through a file and came up with a slip of paper. I think I'll see what he has to say, Tom said. He picked up the phone and gave the operator a New Haven number. Rick and Scotty waited quietly. Jenkins. Rick turned that name over in his mind again. Where had he heard it recently? Thanks, Tom said heavily and hung up. He turned to the boys. That number has been disconnected, he mimicked the telephone operator. Isn't that just fine? Now what? He sat down again. How is Doug taking it? Hard, Rick said. I guess it's pretty serious. Plenty serious. I know you kids are interested, and I like the enthusiasm with which you pitch in, so I don't mind telling you, this thing, plus importing workmen from Bridgeport, is draining our remaining capital right down to the dregs. He paused, his face grave. Just one more thing, and it doesn't have to be very big, and it'll push us right over the edge into bankruptcy. Rick and Scotty looked at him unbelievingly. They had no intimation that the situation was that bad. It's true, Tom said quietly. Unless we have a lot of luck from now on, this plant will never have a chance to start operations. Chapter 6. Barbie Bakes a Cake I think I need a suggestion, Tom Blakely said. Something that'll keep Doug's mind occupied, at least for tonight. He saw Rick's questioning glance and went on. Well, Doug's a pretty serious guy, and he's all wrapped up in this thing. Unless we figure out something that'll keep him busy, he's going to brood over it and get himself into a fine state of nerves. That made sense to Rick. It fit in with his feelings about Doug. The young engineer was as absorbed in the sea processing plant as Hartson Brandt had always been in the spindrift experiments. Comparing Doug with his father gave Rick an idea. I've got it, he exclaimed. Do you suppose we could persuade Doug to fly down to Spindrift tonight? You could have dinner with us and stay the night. That's just the thing, Tom said at once. You'd like that. I could talk him into it. Only, how are we going to get there? Steve Hollis is Fairchild, Rick answered promptly. I could fly over and pick it up, then come back and get you. If Steve isn't planning to use it, of course... We'll call him and see, Tom said. I'll get Doug. It'll take a while to persuade him. He hates to get out of sight of this place. It took only a minute to get a call through to the airport. Steve replied cheerfully that Rick was welcome to the Fairchild. Of course, you're going to have to leave a $10,000 deposit, he added. What luck, Rick replied. I just happen to have that much in my piggy bank. You don't mind pennies, do you? Certainly not. With that many pennies, I can repay the runway in solid copper. Well, come and get it when you want it. Rick hung up and grinned at Scotty. Great guy if I ever met one. A few moments later, they heard the partners arguing outside. As they came into the hut, Tom said, Okay, let's get down to cases here. Just what's so important that you can't leave? Well, I could do some wiring on the fractionated controls. You could be doing that while the workmen install the processing units. 
It wouldn't do any good to get the wiring done before then. Doug was plainly weakening. I could rig the chemical dumps. The platforms aren't built yet, so what good would it do? None. Then it's settled, Rick. We'll accept your invitation. Swell, Rick exclaimed. Scotty, better call up Captain Galt. We wouldn't want him to think we'd skipped without paying our bill. I'll call home from the airport to tell him Mother we're coming. Okay, Scotty returned. But you better change that shirt. Your mother would have a fit if she saw you like that. Tom offered the loan of one of his, and Rick accepted. He changed and then hurried to the cub, disconnected the warning system, warmed it up, and headed for the airport. The obliging airport manager had the Fairchild waiting, prop turning over. Rick exchanged his little plane for the big cabin biplane and was back at the beach landing strip in no time. Scotty, Doug, and Tom were waiting on the beach. The partners had brought along an overnight bag, and now that the decision to go had been made, were excited at the prospect of visiting the famous island. As the Fairchild took to the air, Rick put it into a climbing turn directly over the plant. He glanced down and saw the hole in the pressure dome. The thing that had been gnawing at his memory clicked into place now. Listen, I know where I've heard the name of Jenkins before. It was on the return address of that envelope Fred Lewis dropped. Who's Fred Lewis? Tom asked. He's the man we saw at the plant gate on Sunday, Scotty explained. We saw him again in the hotel lobby. Rick and I have some homework to do on that guy. But let's not get excited over the name on the envelope. Come on, Rick. Jenkins is pretty common. I know some people by that name myself. Scotty was right, of course. The fact that he had seen the name of Jenkins on the envelope didn't really mean anything. Rick put the matter out of his mind and concentrated on his flying. Instead of flying down the coastline, as he usually did, he set a compass course for Brooklyn, then crossed over Staten Island and picked up the New Jersey coast. In an incredibly short time, to one used to the lazy flight of the Cub, Spindrift Island came into sight. So that's Spindrift, Doug's voice sounded awed. Rick winked at Scotty. He knew from the excitement in the young engineer's voice that the troubles at the plant had been forgotten, at least for a while. They landed on the grassy strip along the edge of the orchard, and Rick set the parking brakes and cut the engine. Welcome to Spindrift, he said proudly. The engine noise gave way to furious barks. A shaggy little form came pelting through the orchard, teeth bared and ready to defend the island against all invaders. Rick stepped out and jumped down from the wing. Who are you barking at? he demanded sternly. Dismal's throat clogged in mid-bark. He yipped joyously, then rolled over and played dead. Scotty sniffed the air. Not bad, that mixture of skunk and lavender. I guess Barbie sprayed him with foo-foo all right. Barbie herself came running toward them, a slim figure in tennis skirt and one of Rick's shirts. Rick, where did you get the new plane? Hi, Scotty. Golly, it's beautiful. Then she saw the two strangers just getting out of the plane and was suddenly dignified. Barbie, Rick said, Mr. Douglas Chambers and Mr. Thomas Blakely. Doug and Tom, this is my sister Barbara. How do you do? Barbie said graciously, her eyes bright with curiosity. How do you do, Miss Brant? Tom smiled. 
but Doug's greeting was just a polite murmur. His attention had been instantly focused on the great bulk of the laboratories. Mr. and Mrs. Brandt came to meet them as they walked to the porch, their cordial welcome making the partners feel instantly at home. Mrs. Brandt promised one of her excellent dinners, and followed reluctantly by Barbie, she went off to the kitchen. The boys joined Hartz and Brandt and the partners on a tour of the island and the labs. Not until they were settled on the porch after dinner did the conversation turn to the sea mine plant, and then it was the partners who brought the subject. "'You must be curious about what we're doing, Mr. Brandt,' Tom ventured. "'Naturally,' Hartz and Brandt smiled. "'I know something of the standard methods of processing seawater, but I understand you have something entirely new.' Doug nodded. "'I started to explain it to Rick, but—' "'But it was too much for me,' Rick grinned. "'All about molecular electronic coefficients and stuff.' He was startled at the swift change in his father's expression. The scientist leaned forward, eyes wide. Do you mean to tell me you've solved the necessary equations for that? Yes, sir, Doug said with a note of pride in his voice. I got on the track while I was still in school, but it wasn't until I read the reports on atomic chain reaction and the cadmium factor that I had any luck. I'd already figured out how we could process seawater by using the electronic characteristics of the various molecules of the compounds in solution. Then, when the atom reports put me on the track, I was able to figure out the electronic coefficients. I'd like you to see my equation table someday, sir. I'd like that, too, Hartson Brandt said. How are you using them? Well, the electronic equipment, except for individual control panels, is centered in one building. We prepare the water in fractionators by using a fractional distillation process of the presence of catalysts. Then we electrolyze it as much as possible in pressure domes, and finally treat it chemically in the sediment tanks. Then it goes to electronic processors, and the equations work in at that point. After that, it's routine. Very sound, Hartson Brandt declared, and evolved from a brilliant theory. On the basis of what you've just told me, Douglas, I think we might extend an invitation to you to join us here at Spindrift at any time you feel free to do so. Rick sat back speechless. He had hurt polite refusals given men who wanted to join Spindrift scientists. He had never, ever, or expected to hear anyone actually invited to join. He looked at Doug with new respect. Holy leaping porpoises, Scotty exclaimed. If those processes are that good, we shouldn't leave them alone like that. Don't worry about it, Tom said. They're well guarded. That little concrete house is built like a bank vault, but better. Inside the concrete is armor plate forged as thick that we got from Navy surplus. It would take an atom bomb to break in. Well, that's a relief, Rick murmured. His thoughts had paralleled Scotty's. Now I have some questions. Hartson Brandt said, I'm interested in the business side. That's my department, Tom Blakely said. You probably guessed that we're operating on a shoestring. Any of the big companies would have backed us, but we didn't want to share the processes. Amalgamated Mines has approached us several times. Doug went to them originally. They wanted to buy the processes outright at a ridiculous price. Well, I had a little money I'd inherited, and Doug had some more. We pooled that, and Doug's uncle invested another 10000 Uncle Frank has a big fortune, Doug interposed. But he doesn't believe in gambling, or so he says. He refused to put any more in than 10000 Anyway, Tom continued, we got going and established credit. 
We had enough capital to start small, but things began to happen. Costs went up, and so did wages. He went on to outline the mishaps that had befallen the partners and concluded, Now the situation is really serious. Our credit is running out and our capital has dwindled. After we pay the workmen and rebuild the domes, we'll be almost broke. One more accident will finish us. After a moment's silence, Hartson Brandt asked, Are you familiar with probability mathematics? A little, Doug said. They're a hobby of mine, the scientist explained. Probabilities work in a measurable sequence. For instance, I could predict with some accuracy just which cards will turn up in a game of solitaire, after I've seen the first few. Now, in constructing anything like your plant, certain numbers of accidents are probable. But from what you tell me, and knowing something of similar plants, I'd say that you have exceeded your mathematical quota. Rick felt Scotty tense beside him. Doug and Tom were staring at the scientist. In other words, Hartson Brandt went on, I accept what you told me as almost certain mathematical proof that many of your troubles have been man-made. Doug and Tom glanced at each other. We've thought of that, Tom said. So have I, Rick echoed. Ditto, Scotty said. But why would anybody want to sabotage us? Doug asked. Hartson Brandt countered with another question. Who would get the processes if you went bankrupt? Our creditors, Tom answered promptly. But they're all respected firms. Well, it's one answer, Hartson Brandt said. He rose from his chair. I think we've talked enough for a bit. Is anyone game for a walk? Only Doug seemed to have that much ambition. He and the scientist departed in the direction of the tidal flats. Barbie and Mrs. Brandt appeared, their after-dinner chores finished. I'm sorry we haven't any cake for your usual late snack, Mrs. Brandt said to Scotty, her eyes twinkling. But we didn't expect you. Barbie will bake us a cake, Scotty offered. Barbie glared at him. Rick grinned. Barbie could bake cakes all right, but she hated cooking. It wasn't sophisticated, she said. Sure, he agreed. She makes wonderful cakes, Tom. Let's all go into the kitchen and help her. Barbie knew when she was trapped, but she made a last try at resisting. But Rick, that is so dull. Not at all, Tom smiled. So unusual to find a girl who can really cook these days. Barbie's resistance to the idea melted. All right, then. Well, she said gaily, let's go bake a cake. Mrs. Brant said something under her breath that sounded to Rick like, I never thought I'd see the day. But she raised no objection. They all gathered in the kitchen and offered advice while Barbie mixed the ingredients. Then Rick got a sudden brainstorm and nudged Scotty. Tell you what, sis, you make the cake and I'll bake it in my induction heater. It was a unit that he had rigged for cooking hamburgers late at night when he wanted a snack. It worked like an induction furnace, high-frequency current cooking anything placed between the two coils. Barbie fell neatly into the trap. Oh, would you, Rick? Then we won't have to bother with the oven. He had cooked things for her before, and she knew that the induction coils took less time. I'll help him, Scotty said, on his toes because of the nudge Rick had given him. He knew something was afoot and was ready to help out. Tell you what, you and Tom fix the frosting while we bake the cake. Barbie mixed the batter and folded it neatly into an oblong tin. Rick, unnoticed, had gotten an identical tin from the cupboard. 
He walked out with it under his jacket, and in a moment, Scotty followed with Barbie's cake. Once in the safety of Rick's room, Scotty asked, What's on your mind? Dirty work of some kind, I'll bet. Rick produced the second tin. Barbie always makes a loaf cake. That's what gave me the idea. He connected the induction coils and put the cake in between them. It would be done in five minutes. Then he rummaged around in a box of odds and ends and came up with a balloon. Watch this, he said gleefully. He blew up the balloon, which was one of those long sausage-shaped varieties, stopping when it was about the size of the cake tin. He tied a knot to hold the air in place, then placed the inflated balloon in the cake tin, squeezing until it just fit, the red rubber protruding in a mound like the top of a cake. Now, run downstairs and get the frosting. Tell Barbie we'll reverse the current and cool the cake so we can frost it right away. But that's not possible, Scotty objected. Rick grinned. Barbie doesn't know that. Tell her to entertain Tom and leave everything to us and get a cake plate. Got it, Scotty answered and hurried off while Rick kept an eye on the cake in the induction cooker. The cake was done when Scotty returned, carrying a bowl of thick white frosting and a cake plate. I convinced her she thinks you're a second Edison being able to cool a cake in an induction heater. Rick took the cake out of the heater and transferred it from the cake tin to the plate. Then he turned on the fan and left it to cool. Oh, there's plenty of frosting, he said. We'll frost the cake later. Smells good, Scotty said yearningly. Rick took the bowl of frosting and carefully coated the balloon until the last trace of red rubber had vanished under the tempting coat of white. The balloon and the tin made a slightly higher mound than a real cake would, but otherwise there was no outward difference. The frosting was already hardening. Let's go. We'll leave the real one up here and come back for it later. Did they go to the porch? Yep, Scotty said, grinning. They hurried down the stairs and carried the frosted balloon out to the porch. A beauty, Rick remarked, holding it out. A real masterpiece, and as light as a feather. Lighter, maybe. Scotty stifled a betraying chuckle. Barbie's eyes opened wide. Did it really cool that fast? Oh, Rick, you didn't take it out of the tin. Rick looked properly surprised. Oh, gosh, what a dope I am. Well, never mind. We'll serve it from the tin. Do we get milk with it? Barbie looked at the cake doubtfully, but didn't say anything further. She hurried to the kitchen. Mrs. Brandt looked at her son suspiciously. You have something up your sleeves, both of you. You look far too smug. I didn't know you could reverse an induction heater, Tom said thoughtfully. Oh, sure, Rick said hurriedly. I'll tell you about it later. Barbie reappeared with a tray containing a pitcher of milk, glasses, and plates for the cake. I think Tom should cut the cake, Scotty said. He raised the honor as the only visitor present. Of course, Rick said. He picked up the cake tin and set it before Tom on a coffee table. He had to be careful not to let anybody else handle it because its giveaway was its lightness. He presented the cake knife to Tom. Cut, he invited. Barbie watched anxiously. Tom took the knife and with a smile at Barbie started to cut. Rick almost laughed outright at the strange look that came over his face, but he choked it back. Harder, he urged. It must be a sponge cake. The knife penetrated the hard outer coating of white frosting, but wouldn't cut. Yep, sponge cake, Scotty agreed and started coughing. Rick poked him and regained his self-control. Tom gave the boys a worried look. 
The cake just wouldn't cut. Jab it, Rick suggested. He stole a look at Barbie's horrified scarlet face. Tom had been gently trying to cut into the cake, but now he took the blunt cake knife and poked. Nothing happened, except that the knife pushed right back at him. Tom looked like a man who had just had a sandwich bite him back. Rick felt as though he would burst from his effort to control his mirth, but he felt in his pocket and came out with the scout knife he always carried. He opened the long blade and handed it to Tom. Try this, Rick suggested. Mrs. Brandt was holding a handkerchief to her lips, but a soft giggle escaped. She looked accusingly at Rick. Barbie and Scotty were both crimson, but for different reasons. Tom took the knife with an embarrassed smile and poked. Air whooshed out at him, and he almost jumped out of his seat. Rick waited for the cake to collapse as a punctured balloon should, but it didn't. What on earth? Mrs. Brandt started. Scotty fell into a chair and roared. Rick stared at the cake tin. He had seen instantly what had happened. The balloon had collapsed as the air rushed out through the hole Tom had made, but the hardened frosting had remained intact. He looked at it, and a picture flashed into his mind, a picture from a newsreel. Men were pouring cement over a dome-like rubber bag. The pressure domes, he said, his voice hushed. They could be rebuilt like that. What? Tom asked in bewilderment. Rick, what did you do to my cake? Barbie demanded almost tearfully. They build houses, Rick said. I saw it in a newsreel. They pour concrete over a rubber mold, then let it harden, and then deflate the mold. Tom was on his feet now. Gosh, yes, you're right. I've seen pictures of it in the magazines. We could get one of those firms to re-pour the domes just as they would a house. Suddenly, Tom was off the porch, running in the direction Doug and Hartson Brandt had gone. He was yelling Doug's name at the top of his lungs. That's what I like about this place, Barbie said unhappily. Even the guests are crazy. She was staring at her cake. Rick and Scotty shook hands soberly. Well, that's using the old bean, Scotty said. They could save plenty of money and have the domes re-poured in a single day. Mrs. Brandt stood beside them. You'll get around to explaining, I'm sure. But meanwhile, what happened to Barbie's cake? Rick was instantly contrite. We'll have it right now. As Scotty went off to get the real cake, he explained. It was supposed to just be a joke, sis, but it turned out to be the luckiest thing ever. He explained about the pressure domes and how houses were made by using the rubber forms. Barbie was mollified by the explanation. Then suddenly she laughed. It would have been a howl if the cake had collapsed. She poked the crust of frosting with her finger, and it cracked and fell into the tin. Then they were all laughing.